In the first part of Mark chapter 8, we have the feeding of the 4,000, somewhere near the Sea of Galilee. We're not sure from Mark's Gospel exactly where. Then in verses 10 to 12, sorry, verse 10, we read that he got into a boat with his disciples and went to the region of Dalmanutha. Dalmanutha is mentioned only this once in the whole of our Bible. Scholars say it's the same place that's sometimes known as Magdala, which is, of course, the hometown of Mary Magdalene. It seems, although we can't be sure, but it seems from the very brief mention of Jesus and his disciples' stay in Dalmanutha that it wasn't a fruitful time. The only reception, the only response to Jesus' teaching that we get here is the Pharisees' demand for a sign. And we must be careful not to confuse this with the uh, meaning of signs in John's Gospel, which we studied, you'll remember, a few months ago. In John's Gospel, signs are confirmation for believers. They're reinforcement, if you like, of Jesus' message. In the Synoptic Gospels, signs are inevitably requested as a sign of their, the questioner's unbelief, of their doubts. And they're saying they're not expecting to get an answer to their question, but expressing their disbelief and their rejection of Jesus' message. So verse 13, they get into the boat and cross back to the other side. And in all the toing and throwing, they'd forgotten the bread. Typical. We might do the same. Do you find yourself forgetting things? They'd forgotten the bread. They just had this little one loaf, which might have been just a small thing that we might call a roll. We might say it's very important. We place great store on having fellowship meals together. But Jesus wasn't bothered about the bread. And the disciples really shouldn't have been. They'd seen these two wonderful miracles that Jesus had performed. And of course, Jesus himself had said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. As we know, Jesus' meat, Jesus' food, was to do the will of his Father in heaven. But Jesus, the teacher of wisdom, is wanting to teach these 12 men a spiritual lesson. So he seizes on bread as an illustration. And he says, beware the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. Only he said leaven, which our modern translations inevitably translate as, as yeast, because yeast is what we use as leaven these days. Leavening is something to make bread rise, to swell it out and change it from being small and uninteresting into something lovely and appetising. In biblical times, Yeast wasn't used. They kept a small piece of fermented dough that was placed within the new batch of dough, causing the bread to rise. And you may be aware, I'm sure you are, of Jesus' parable of the yeast in the bread, which is like the kingdom of God. When we preach the gospel, it bears fruit. It makes the loaf to rise. And that's what the kingdom of God is like. But in every other biblical re reference to leaven or yeast, the sense is negative. 
Anyone know what this comes from? What is the big Old Testament event in which unleavened bread features so prominently? Passover, somebody said. Yes, well done. The Passover. To this day, every year at Passover time, in strict Jewish families, they remove all yeast from their house. And the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, which is set up in Exodus chapter 12 at the time of the Passover, Passover, it was laid down that Jewish families in the seven days up to Passover should remove all yeast from their homes. Now why on earth were they asked to do that? Well, they left Egypt in a hurry. You remember the story? Read Exodus 12 when you get home again. The angel came and smote the firstborn of every house in Egypt as God's final punishment for the Egyptians for their enslaving of his people. And the Jews were spared because they had smeared on their doorposts and lintels the blood of the sacrificial lamb. And they left in a hurry, and they were commanded not to worry about taking yeast, in fact, to clear all yeast out of their house. They took, we read in Exodus chapter 12, their dough wrapped in cloths and contained in their kneading troughs. And they ate unleavened bread because they were people on a journey, as we are on a journey with Jesus. There's reference to Passover in one of Paul's letters 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6. Paul is writing to this difficult church in Corinth, a church that had got some things right and was in some respects a very spiritual church with spiritual gifts being used, but in other respects was, was falling short in so many respects. So Paul writes and says, Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast, so that you may be a new batch without yeast as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore let us keep the festival not with the old yeast, the yeast of malice and wickedness, but with bread without yeast, the bread of sincerity and truth. So there's Paul using the idea of unleavened bread as a spiritual illustration. He's not talking about the Christians in Corinth celebrating Passover. He's talking about them living their new life in Christ without this negative influence. Because unleavened, sorry, leaven or yeast spoke of captivity, spoke of the old regime, the slavery in Egypt. Whereas unleavened bread spoke of a people on the move, a people being delivered by God. And yet the yeast of the Pharisees and the spiritual leaders of Israel at Jesus' time, their leaven, their yeast, was their unbelief, their hypocrisy, their tendency to see things from a human point of view rather than from God's. And the disciples were in danger of doing just this very thing, getting worried about bread, because they hadn't just forgotten bread, they'd forgotten who they were with. But back to Mark 8. And in verse 22, we have what seems to us to be a very abrupt change of subject. 
Jesus and his disciples come to Bethsaida. Magdala was on the northwest shores of Galilee. Bethsaida is on the northeast. Bethsaida was Peter's hometown. And they arrive there and a blind man is brought to Jesus. I don't know whether you've ever noticed how compassionately Jesus deals with this blind man. He leads him by the hand, because touch obviously is so important for a blind person. And he leads him away from all the hubbub and the talk that's going on and leads him out of the village to a quiet place. And then using the ancient symbolism of saliva, he he anoints his eyes, lays his hand on him and he heals him. Or does he? Or does he? The man's sight is restored, hallelujah, but not perfectly. Mind you, if it happened in our church, we'd claim this as a wonderful miracle of healing, wouldn't we? Somebody is enabled to see, even though they can't distinguish people's features or any details, but they can see. But for Jesus... He wanted this man perfectly healed. And it needed a second touch from Jesus for the man to be given 20-20 vision. This short passage about the healing of the man in Bethsaida is unique in our Bibles. No other gospel has it. I don't know whether perhaps Matthew, Luke and John thought it reflected a bit negatively on Jesus that in fact this was a healing that didn't work the first time. Don't know, we can only conjecture. It's the only time in our New Testament where there is a two-stage healing. We could speculate for the rest of the day as to why this happened, but nobody knows why. You can consult commentaries and learned tomes. Nobody knows why. Difficult to explain why this miracle was different. But what is not difficult to understand is why Mark linked this passage with the previous one about the disciples and the leaven of the Pharisees. Turn back to verses 17 and 18. Jesus overhears, or perhaps he knew, I don't know, the discussion about the missing bread. And he said, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears that fail to hear? That's why my title this evening is The Boat, the Bread and the Blind Men. Not the blind man, the blind men. Because there were a lot of blind men in this passage. There was the one in Bethsaida and there were 12 in the boat. Blind to seeing who Jesus really was. Having their eyes opened but not fully opened. And the disciples themselves, even though they were believers in Jesus, praise God for that, they still needed a spiritual second touch. Back in the 1960s, some of you will remember, when I was a new Christian, I came across a Christian writer called Keith Miller. I would be amazed if anyone else here has ever heard of him. Um... He was a converted oil company executive in the United States, probably quite a high-powered man in the business world. He had a wonderful born-again experience of becoming a Christian. 
and he became a leader in the movement in the USA for lay leadership. One of his books that he wrote, and he wrote three or four, but one of his books influenced me a lot. It's called A Second Touch. And he puts a new slant on this story of the man from Bethsaida. I'm going to read how he translates the verses from Mark chapter 8. I can see people, but they look like trees walking around. So Jesus touched his eyes a second time. And then he saw men as Christ saw them. I like that. Then he saw men as Christ saw them. Now, you will be quick to point out that's not what Mark wrote. You're quite right. It's not what Mark wrote. It's a preacher's interpretation, but I like it. Gives room for all sorts of thought. Because how did Jesus see people? In this chapter, he saw them as hungry. He saw them as blind. He saw them as lost. He saw them as sheep without a shepherd. He saw them as needing healing. He saw them as spiritually blind. He saw them as sinners needing a saviour. And in this little book that I've kept on my bookshelves all those years, Keith Miller describes his own second touch, where he suddenly realised that the Christian world is not like the business world where you can manipulate people and organise people to do what you want them to do. You look at people and see them as people, not as how useful they're going to be to you or how irritating they are or how much of a hindrance they are to what you're trying to do. You look at people and see them as people. And Keith Miller describes, sometimes with humour about his failures, but he describes how he set himself to see people as people, as, as Christ saw them. And so without going through the whole of the chapter there, he gets up in the morning, drives to his office, but on the way he needs petrol, gasoline for his car. He stops and the attendant, because this is the 1960s when you had someone to fill up your car with petrol, the attendant serves him with a smile. He knows his name. He says, good morning, Mr. Miller. And Keith Miller realises he doesn't even know this man's name, although he's been served by him for time after time. And he realises he knows nothing about him. So he sees his name on the lapel badge, and he says, hello, Charlie. And he finds out something about that man. And next time he goes, he, he knows a bit more about him. OK, it's a simple lesson, and some of you, I know, probably all of you, try to do this already. In my better moments, I try to live like this. Try to see people as Jesus sees them. Not easy, because it's easy to see them as people who please you or disappoint you, see them as people who are useful to you or people who irritate you, people who think the same as you do, and they're the lovely people, or people who think differently from the way you do. But it's wonderful, isn't it, this idea of a second touch to enable us to see people as Jesus saw them. Because with God, there's always the possibility of a fresh start. We're all believers here. Praise God for that. Some of you I learned a lot from and been encouraged by. 
But there comes a time when we realise we need that second touch from the Lord so that we're standing where he stands, so to speak, so that we become channels of his love and his concern for people, so that instead of living in the future or dwelling on the past, we're living in the only time that we can influence, which is this present moment. So tomorrow, each of us will be in touch with people whom we can treat just as one more body, or we can look at and see as a person for whom Christ died, whom Jesus loves, about whom Jesus is concerned.